And I think that perhaps most of us, if not all of us that are here, that maybe we've labored in something. We put a lot of time into a project or in hard work into to something, and it fell apart. It collapsed. It didn't work out the way we expected it to. So I think that perhaps some of us have experienced that in one way or another in life. The glorious thing about what you do for the Lord, it is never, never in vain. Welcome to Under the Fig Tree. Under the Fig Tree is a verse-by-verse study taught by Pastor Jeff Figs of Calvary Chapel of Greeley. We are currently studying through the New Testament book of 1 Corinthians. Here's Pastor Jeff. We are in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. You should be at verse 50. As Paul is writing to the church about the resurrection, he says, Now this I say, brethren, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does corruption inherit incorruption. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised incorruptible, and we shall be changed. For this corruptible must put on incorruption, and this mortal must put on immortality. So when this corruptible has put on incorruption, and this mortal has put on immortality, then shall be brought to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your sting? O Hades, where is your victory? The sting of death is sin, and the strength of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. So in this chapter, 1 Corinthians, Paul, of course, has been writing uh, about this, this subject concerning the resurrection to the Christians there in Corinth. And he began the chapter, as we saw a couple weeks ago, by saying that I have delivered to you the gospel message, and that is that Jesus Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, and he was buried and he rose again according to the scriptures. And so that's the simplicity of the gospel. Jesus Christ dying for our sins and then put into a tomb and he rose again and he's alive. And so Paul would then give evidence for the resurrection. As you recall, he would say that the resurrected Jesus was seen by Peter and by the twelve. He was also seen by James, his brother, and he was seen by 500 brethren at once. Many who are still alive, go and ask them. They will give you an eyewitness account and testimony that they saw the resurrected Jesus. And then Paul would say that finally I saw him. And Paul's witness and testimony of the resurrected Jesus is unique in that, that Paul saw Jesus after his ascension. Of course, uh, years after the ascension, Jesus would appear to uh, the apostles and to the brethren from the time of his resurrection for 40 days till the time that he ascended up into heaven as we read the gospel accounts. But Paul, years later on his way, of course, to Damascus would be um, one that would see the resurrected Jesus as Jesus presented himself 
to Paul, and Paul was converted at that time. And so he's given that account, and it was important that Paul would say that Jesus rose from the grave because in verse 12, we saw of this chapter that the apostle would say, how is it that some of you do not believe in the resurrection? And of course, some of the Greek philosophers, and remember that the Corinthians were very much influenced by the Greek philosophers, they didn't uh, believe in the resurrection. They thought that the resurrection was something that was not to be desired. And so Paul would make the point that if Jesus Christ did not raise from the grave, rise up from the grave, come forth from the tomb that is, literally, bodily, physically, then we have no hope. We're still in our sins. Our faith is futile. And we are men to be pitied because of the labor that we've done for the Lord. But by the fact that Jesus Christ did rise and from the grave and he's alive and, and witnesses saw him, we know that we are tied into his resurrection. Jesus, of course, being the first fruits of the resurrection. So the truth of the resurrection speaks about how we will have new glorious heavenly bodies because our resurrection is again tied in to the fact that Jesus Christ rose from the grave. And in verse 23, that we will be resurrected, each in his own order, at the coming of Christ. So that's what Paul is going to be discussing as we finish the chapter this morning. And then we're going to move into chapter 16, the last chapter of 1 Corinthians as well. So once again, we read in verse 50, that now this I say, brethren, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does corruption inherit incorruption. So as we have learned about the resurrection in this chapter, the bodies that we have now are temporary. They're going to wear out eventually. When Paul wrote in his second letter to the Corinthians, he said, For we know that if our earthly house, this tent, is destroyed, that we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. So Paul, again, in his second letter to this church, would make reference to the resurrection, that this tent is going to wear out, of course, and we want to take care of our bodies and eat healthy and exercise. But no matter how much we do that, eventually our lives are going to come to an end on this side of eternity. And so we're being told here that our natural bodies are going to be raised a spiritual body. Uh, we saw that our bodies are going to be in corruption, are going to be raised in incorruption. And we discussed that in detail in verses 35 through 49 last week. And so uh, we have been born uh, the image of the man of dust that is after Adam but we shall, as Paul continues to write, also bear the image of the heavenly man, that is Jesus Christ, because he went to the cross for you and for me, and he rose again after three days. And so we have that promise of those new glorious bodies that we're going to receive. Remember, the resurrection is not just talking about eternal life. See, to be absent from the body is to be present from the Lord, but eternal life and new glorious bodies that our bodies are going to be raised one day to new glorious heavenly bodies. And so we've been discussing that quite uh, extensively over the last couple of weeks, going through this chapter. And so he continues here is verse 51, But behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. And so flesh and blood will not inherit the kingdom of God, verse 50, nor does corruption inherit incorruption. And in that, I think that Paul was perhaps anticipating a question that these Corinthian thinkers, and they were thinkers, that they would come up with a question. 
They would say, perhaps, okay, so the day will come when the dead will receive glorified bodies, in verse 23, at his coming. But what about us who are living, we who are alive? What will happen to us at the Lord's return? So Paul now explains here in verse 51, he he talks about a mystery. Now, a mystery, when you see that word in the New Testament, what that word means is something that was previously unknown is now being revealed to the church. So you see that word come up in the New Testament about certain truths that are now being revealed to us as Christians. For example, in Colossians chapter 1, verse 26, Paul writes about the mystery that has been hidden from ages and from generations, but now has been revealed to his saints, and that is, Christ is in you, the hope of glory. So he reveals that mystery. Understand, Christians, that, that Christ is in you, dwells in your heart. That's a marvelous truth that you and I can embrace. Christ dwells in our hearts. Christ in you, the hope of glory. In Ephesians chapter 3, the apostle wrote this, that the mystery that has now been revealed by the Spirit to his holy apostles, that the Gentiles should be fellow heirs of the same body and be partakers of his promise in Christ through the gospel. In other words, that you Gentile believers have now entered into the kingdom of God through Christ, your faith in him. And your fellow heirs of the same body, partakers of his promise. And it's all through Jesus Christ. In Ephesians chapter 5, Paul explained how our relationship as husbands and wives, the Christian marriage, should speak somewhat of our relationship with Christ. And at the end of that chapter, when Paul is writing about responsibilities of husbands and wives, he would then say in verse 32 of the chapter that this is a great mystery that I speak concerning Christ and the church, and that is we are the bride of Christ. He's our bridegroom. Husbands, your responsibility as a husband, a godly husband, is to love your wife as Christ loves the church and gave himself for her. So just as Christ loves us unconditionally, he loves us sacrificially, laid down his life for us, served us, so good to us and faithful. That love, husband, that you show towards your wife should mirror that, should be that which Christ has for us, loving your wife unconditionally, sacrificially, serving her, cherishing her, being good to her. And wives, be submissive to your own husbands as unto the Lord. That's the qualifier, as unto the Lord. And just as it is a joy or should be a joy, and that should be your mindset in your heart this morning, it is a joy to submit to the Lord because he is so loving and so good. He's so faithful. He loves me unconditionally, sacrificially. He laid down his life for me. That it's a joy for me to submit to you, Lord. That I pray that, that husbands, that our wives could say that. That it's a joy for me to submit to you, husband, a godly husband. But you see, he says it's a mystery. It should be a picture of, of us, the, the, the bride of Christ, to our bridegroom, Jesus Christ. And so these mysteries, and that is these truths that are revealed to us, to the church. And so he tells of a mystery here in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 concerning the resurrection. It would be the first epistle, I believe, that Paul would write, or what scholars and historians of Christianity would say that the first epistle that Paul wrote that we have recorded in the New Testament was 1 Thessalonians as he was writing to that church. 
And in chapter 4, in verses 13 through 18, I'll read it to you. You can flip over a few pages and find it if you want. But he's writing to the church of Thessalonica about the resurrection. And he says to them, again, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, you can just listen to me, read it later, or flip over and, and follow along with me. But he says in chapter 4, verse 13, But I do not want you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning those who have fallen asleep, lest you sorrow as others who have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus Christ died and rose again, even so God will bring with him those who sleep in Jesus. For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will by no means precede those who are asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with the shout, with the voice of an archangel, with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. So he's talking about the resurrection. And then verse 17, we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And thus we shall always be with the Lord. Therefore, comfort one another with these words. So Paul was needing to bring that comfort and understanding to the church at Thessalonica concerning the resurrection. And I don't know if you know this, but historians will tell us that that church, the church at Thessalonica, was one of the first churches that would experience persecution there in the first century. So there were those who were martyred for their faith and trust in Jesus Christ, so they needed to be comforted. They needed to have an understanding of those who had passed on, perhaps martyred. And they were wondering about the resurrection, and so Paul is explaining this to them. And so he says, I don't want you to be ignorant about those who have fallen asleep. You have a living hope through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And the day is going to come, verse 16, for the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel, with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. And then, as he talks about the resurrection, he continues. In verse 17, he says something very incredible. He goes on and he says, Then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And thus we shall always be with the Lord. I love that. I have that underlined. We shall always be with the Lord when the Lord comes for us. So he says something that is absolutely amazing there in verse 17 of 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. He is telling us that there will be a generation of believers that will be caught up that is the Greek word harpazo that is used, which means a sudden snatching, a taken away. It is the Latin word rapturus where we get our English word rapture. There will be a sudden taking of Christians. We will be caught up, snatched up to meet Jesus in the air at the trump of God. In other words, Christ's return for his saints will be announced from heaven forcefully and dramatically. And Paul now in 1 Corinthians 15 is giving us some further insights to that day. He says, Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep. That is, we shall not all die. But we shall be changed, verse 52, in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound, and the dead in Christ will be raised incorruptible, or, and we shall be changed. And so when we talk about the coming of Christ, you need to remember that there are two distinct events that are spoken of in the New Testament. There is, first of all, 
the rapture of the church, when Jesus Christ comes back for his church and we meet him in the air, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 16. And that's what he's telling them. That's what Paul is explaining. We shall not all sleep. There's going to be a time when we're going to be changed. We're going to meet the Lord in the air. So the rapture of the church is when Jesus comes for his church. And then there's the second coming of Jesus Christ when we will come with him. So the rapture of the church is when we will meet him in the air, a generation of Christians, and he comes for his church. The second coming of Jesus Christ that will take place at the end of the tribulation period. Now, most of you know what the tribulation period is, but if you're new to end-time prophecy, that tribulation period is a period of seven years preceding the second coming of Jesus Christ when he will come back literally and physically to this earth. We will come back with him, riding on white horses according to Revelation chapter 19. And he will establish his kingdom at that time. We're going to talk in detail about these things as we will travel into the book of Daniels in a couple weeks. So you have the rapture of the church again. That when he comes for his church, we will meet him in the air, as 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 16 tells us, and also here in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 51 and 52. But also the second coming of Jesus Christ, when he comes back to establish his kingdom, and we will come back with the Lord riding on white horses. And so the coming of the Lord, those two distinct events. Now, people will ask, when will the rapture take place? And there, of course, is debate and discussion in the church when exactly the rapture is going to take place. When is it? There are those who believe that the rapture will take place at the end of that seven-year period, the tribulation period, right before the second coming of Jesus Christ, that he will come for his church, we will meet the Lord in the air, and then we will come right back with him as he comes to establish his kingdom, as he comes back to the Mount of Olives. Remember Jesus said that I'm going to come back again. And as he ascended into heaven after his resurrection, he said just as he ascended, he will come back in like manner. He's going to come back as he ascended from the Mount of Olives. He will come back to the Mount of Olives. So some believe at the end of that seven-year period, the tribulation period, or Daniel's 70th week is what it's called there in the book of Daniel chapter 9. There are those who believe that it will take place in the middle of the tribulation. There are those who believe, and I hold this view, that the rapture of the church will take place before the tribulation period. Now, the reason that I hold the view that the rapture of the church will take place before the tribulation period, and we can get into a long study on it, but I'll just give you some references. For example, in Revelation chapter 3, verse 10, as Jesus was writing to the church of Philadelphia, he says, I will keep you from the hour of trial or tribulation, which shall come upon the whole earth to test those who dwell on the earth. So Jesus is talking about the tribulation period. That is, that's when it's going to be a time of tribulation that will come upon the whole earth. And Jesus promised very specifically to the church that I will keep you from the hour of tribulation. He did not say that I will, will keep you through the hour of tribulation. I will keep you from the hour of tribulation. We have the doctrine of imminent return. Jesus said that you be the wise and faithful servant that is looking for the master's return. 
because I come at a time when you're least expected. Now, we don't know when the rapture of the church is going to happen. We don't know the time of the coming of the Lord for us. No one knows the day or the hour, Jesus said very specifically. But he did say that you and I, in his desire, as we read the scriptures, is for us to be discerning in the times in which we're living in. And I believe that we can, and we're going to see this again as we go through the book of Daniel. It was the Pharisees that were rebuked by Jesus because they weren't discerning of the days in which they were living in. He said to them that you guys can discern the weather. You can tell when the storm is going to come or when the day is going to be nice the next day by the sunset. But how is it that you don't discern the coming of the Son of Man? And so Paul says, the seasons and times, I have no need to write to you, as he is writing to the church at Thessalonica. And we can be discerning and wise, and the Lord desires for us to be, as we read the prophecies in the scripture, we read the newspapers, and we put it together, and we can come to the conclusion, and we will see very clearly when we go through the book of Daniel, that I believe that we are in the last days, and I believe that the Lord can come for us at any time in the rapture of the church. I don't know when he's going to come for us, but Jesus said, I come when you're least expected. So let me ask you a question this morning. Be honest. Do you believe that the Lord can come back today? I come when you least expect it. And perhaps you might be saying, oh, no way. I don't think so. Jesus is saying, be wise and faithful servant that is looking for the master's return. I don't know when he's going to come back. But I know that, as Paul would write, be looking for Jesus from heaven. He calls it the blessed hope there in the book of Titus. Be looking for the blessed hope, return of Jesus Christ. Always be looking, be watching, be waiting, be sober, be vigilant is the, the repeated message in the New Testament. And then John would write in his epistle, he who has this hope, that is the coming of the Lord when we will see him, purifies himself. What does he mean by that? It means as you and I are being that wise and faithful servant. You see, you're being wise and watching for the Lord. You're being faithful and continuing to serve the Lord. Doesn't mean you're sticking your head in the sand. Doesn't mean you stop living or stop ministering. But you're being faithful. Occupy till I come is what Jesus said. But as you're doing that and you say, maybe today, just maybe, perhaps... That the one that I love and the one who died for me is going to come for me today. I'm going to hear the sound of the trumpet. It has a purifying effect on your heart, doesn't it? You're not going to be down hanging out at the bars. Or putting things before your eyes that you shouldn't be. And that's what John is saying, that he who has this hope purifies himself. So here Paul is saying, when this happens, the rapture of the church is going to happen in the twinkling of an eye. Not the blink of an eye, but the twinkling of an eye, which is caused by light reflecting off your eyes. It's going to happen at the speed of light instantaneously. And so he concludes this chapter of the resurrection by, again, emphasizing verse 53. For this corruptible must put on incorruption, and this mortal put, must put on immortality. So when this corruptible has put on incorruption, and this mortal has put on immortality, then shall be brought to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. He's, he's quoting from Isaiah chapter 25, verse 8. O death, verse 55, where is your sting? O Hades, where is your victory? That's an Old Testament reference to Hosea chapter 13. 
And the sting of death is sin, and the strength of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. So the resurrection of Jesus is the final defeat for death. Death no longer has victory, no longer has a sting. It's as though Paul, as he's closing this discussion on the resurrection, he kind of is taunting death here. Oh, death, where is your, your you know, sting? Hades, where is your victory? As he quotes from the Old Testament, death in Hades has no more power over the believer in Christ because of what Jesus Christ has done in going to Calvary's cross. And he's alive because he came forth from the tomb. We're no longer, we as believers, under the penalty of sin and of the law. But now we have victory through Jesus Christ our Lord. And that should affect the way that we think and the way that we live because we're victorious and we have life in the promise of the resurrection. And so he gives this final exhortation here in this chapter. He says, therefore, in verse 58, my beloved brethren, be steadfast and movable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. That's a promise for you and for me this morning. The glorious thing about what you do for the Lord, it is never, listen, it is never, never in vain. Thank you for joining us on Under the Fig Tree. If you would like a copy of today's study, please call us and ask for the message with today's date. Our phone number is 970-330-1717. That number again, 970-330-1717. If you prefer, you can write us at 2602 West 27th Street, Greeley, Colorado, 80634. You can also visit us online at ccgreeley.com. Under the Fig Tree is brought to you by Calvary Chapel of Greeley. We invite you to join with us for our Sunday morning services at 8.30 and 10.30 a.m. and our Wednesday evening service at 7 p.m. Please join with us next time as we continue to study the Bible together on Under the Fig Tree.